Is this 2019? No, maybe 2018. I would guess 2018. Man, we suck at these dates. Let's let me look. Oh, it's 2019. It really was last year. Holy shit. Cool. A lot okay. has happened since last year. Yeah, <laughs> it so, like so it has so been. Longer. It's been a decade since 2019. <laughs> hey there, I'm Jordan. And I'm Nick. We're just two regular guys who love talking about film. And now we'd like to talk to you. We decided to break down our discussions into three parts. Because everyone loves a gimmick. We discuss our expectations for a film before we watch it. That's take one. We give our immediate thoughts following the film. That's take two. And finally, we research the film at length to prepare for an informed and in-depth discussion. And that's take three. So if you love film even half as much as we do, join in on the conversation. This is take three, a movie podcast. Take one. Do you want me to start? No. No, I don't want you to start. Don't do that. I'm going to start. No, I don't want you to do that. I'm going to start. I'm not going to put this in. Yeah, you better put no, this I'm in. No, I'm not. I have, a very, I, have a very special, I have a very special message for you. I'm not. I'm not. I'm not. I'm not. I'm not. Yes, you are. No, I'm not. I want to wish you a very happy birthday. I'm not. This is your birthday episode. I'm not putting I'm this in. I'm doing your favorite thing. I'm not putting this in. Do you get the tingle? Nope. Fuck you. Nope. Are, are you sure? Uh, it's not my birthday. Yes, it is. Happy birthday. Thank you. But not for that bullshit. <laughs> I'm sorry, everyone. Um, anybody who's still listening, uh, welcome to the Twilight Zone, bitch. <laughs> because this is not a season two episode. What? Is it thunder or something? You said, welcome to the Twilight Zone, bitch. Lightning flashed, and like two milliseconds later, there was thunder. And that was like, that was perfect. That would have been perfect. Couldn't have done yeah. it more perfect. <laughs> yeah, so if you hear any rumbling, there's like a small thunderstorm outside right now. So just ignore that. It looks like it's gearing up to storm here, too. Which, good, because it's been like close to 100 all week yeah. or for the past two weeks. And we we need something to cool cool down outside. For sure. It's been brutal. Um, I guess what I was saying is that this is not a season two episode. We've ended season two and we haven't started season three. Uh, but Jordan was insistent that because we had a birthday episode for him, that we should have a birthday episode for me. And so you guys are getting a bonus episode or episode 33 or whatever we wind up calling it. It kind of exists in the purgatory zone between season two and season three. And it's also going to be a super bonus episode a because it's we're doing an actual good movie and a decent movie instead of inde- indecent proposal which we did for my birthday uh and we're also doing our full format this time instead of a quick take so we're doing all three parts because i felt like this movie deserved all three takes yeah this isn't like because i think i'm better we're gonna do a better episode he pretty much oh. decided all of this <laughs> I should have started with that. It should have been like, well, this this motherfucker thinks he's something special. I truly was like, oh, we can do whatever. I was thinking about doing Saw, but I was like, ah, that will be a three and a half hour episode. That's going to have to be something that I prepare a lot for, you know? Yeah. That would be another episode where it's pretty much just you talking, which I'm fine You've with. You've seen I'm, all I of those okay movies. That, but I know, but probably most of them only once. Yeah. And, and I feel like you watch them on the regular. Um, but I know that you mentioned wanting to do Midsummer. I, I definitely do. And uh, even though Midsummer is in June, this is close enough. <laughs> as soon as you said Midsummer, I was like, if we're doing an episode on Midsummer, it needs to be 
three takes. Like there's just too much to that movie to not do a full episode on. So, yeah. Do you remember when we first watched it together, we were in Delaware at the beach house. I do remember. And, uh, we went to this like theater. Was that the time I lost my wallet or my debit card? (laughs) That might've been one of the many times that's that. Which time? Yeah. Fuck off. (laughs) Um, but here's the thing. We we walked out of there and we were like, I think we even were thinking about the option of maybe doing like a quick sort of review for it. But we were just stunned. We were. I remember we were like fully ready to do, to do a quick take on it because I know that we both loved Hereditary. Yeah. And I think much like a lot of people who were seeing this movie for the first time, we're sort of expecting something similar in shock value, I guess. Uh-huh. Um and then leaving that theater, I was like, we can't do this. Like, A, I'm too confused. B, I think it's just a little too weird. Like, I, I just, I left that theater very confused and very, I don't want to say let down, but just like, it wasn't as I was expecting to react. It's not hereditary. Like, okay, even though there are very similar beats that this movie follows, that hereditary also follows, especially in the end where you have this sort of crazy... Uh, almost cathartic experience with, uh, yeah, well, we'll we'll get to that. But um, (laughs) this movie did not at first hit me the same way that Hereditary did and that I was hoping. So it's not something where I was immediately like a huge fan. Yeah. I mean, I guess maybe I respected it and I I liked it, but I was like, I don't ever want to watch that again. I've probably watched that like 20 times since then. (laughs) I was going to say I needed space from it. I think I was like, I don't know what I just experienced. And then after having some space from it, I ended up buying it and I've watched it several times since. And I absolutely fucking love this movie. It is so, so cool. It morphs into appreciation. I think, I think that's what happened with this movie is that you, like I, you know, I've seen hereditary several times. I sort of grew to love midsummer and I've been able to appreciate Ari Aster as a director yeah. so much more yeah. and it makes me excited about his future projects. And I know that he's mentioned that his next project is going to be a four hour nightmare comedy. And I could not be more excited for it. Like he has cemented himself as one of my favorite directors. Now I remember thinking like, what studio is going to let him do that? But then I remembered, Oh, a 24, a 24 would do that in a heartbeat. <laughs> A24. I mean, I, I think that a four-hour movie is still a big undertaking for anybody. But um, well, the issue is now that people want to be able to, you know, have as many screenings as possible so you can get more yeah. tickets. Well, who the fuck knows now? I mean, now yeah, we're now. in the, the summer of <laughs> COVID-19. So we will see how his future work gets received just because the climate's probably uh, changing drastically as we speak. I really like short films, and I've tried to show you them before. Have I actually succeeded in showing you any of them? Possibly. That sounds familiar. I feel like he has a bunch of short films, and I think that they Can you, like, summarize maybe a couple that you might have shown me? It might trigger my memory a bit. So there's, like, a trilogy of ones where it's sort of a main character um, speaking to the camera and just delivering this, like, incredible... Uh, monologue and things are happening behind them and they're walking around and they're sort of telling a story, but it's sort of just like a, like a trail of thought. I'll make sure to link, link them 
and maybe we'll talk about them later. There's a, a bunch of really cool short films that I can imagine probably led to him getting some of the work that he has gotten. Thank God for it because I, I love these movies. I don't know if he's directly responsible for this, but the talent that he's able to pull for his movies is so beyond incredible. Tony Collette, I've always been a fan of, but I I think we even said this in the Hereditary episode. She deserved an Oscar for her performance. So amazing. And this movie, I had never heard of Florence Pugh before, and she just stole this entire movie. She is one of the most incredible actresses I've ever seen. And I want to watch everything she's ever been in. I've yet to see Little Women yet, but I want to. So she's amazing in Little Women. She made Amy March likable, which is hard. <laughs> uh, and I mean, this isn't even in the same ballpark of like the worst things that have happened due to COVID. But like as far as entertainment wise that have hurt me, bring up Widow. it's Black Widow. Yeah, Black yeah. Widow, it stung. And I, you know, they say well, we're going to release it in November I still don't see them being able to drive enough traffic into a theater to make that a valid choice. So I don't think that's going to happen either. I guess time will tell. Anyway, if you haven't seen this movie, brace yourself, but I think you should still watch it. Brace yourself, watch it, and then give yourself some time to digest it a little bit and then maybe watch it again a couple weeks later. Yeah. And if you... If- oh, sorry. oh, of course, you just ruined that all, all that. Turn your well, phone off, sir. He always gives me shit for that. First time, probably since ever recording, I my phone has gone off. That has never happened to me. It happens to you all the fucking time. Yeah, because your phone's always on silence. That's why no one can ever reach you. I know. I, I miss calls all the time. Anyway, um, sorry. <laughs> fuck, I completely forgot what I was even going to say. Sorry. <laughs> I deal with this shit all the time. This is supposed to be like a fun birthday episode for Nick, and the unprofessionalism is far too much. <laughs> Day two. Do you ever watch something that makes you feel so inferior in like every single way? Oh, yeah. Because that's how I feel right now. (laughs) It is the kind of movie I think people will wind up studying like filmmakers. Just the camera work alone is so impressive. It it definitely has a ton of very thoughtful and elaborate camera setups and movements. I think one of my favorite shots in the whole movie is when she's doing the maypole dancing and the camera's like tracking her. It's like it's struggling to keep up with the, the chaos of it all. I really love that. And then it's peppered throughout, but it's, it's very prevalent, like towards the beginning of the movie where we have just these lockdown shots and it it just allows the characters to perform like they're on stage almost. I think I was mainly talking about like how attractive the actors were and like, like, do you think they, do you think they know that they're attractive? Oh my God. I agree with you. I it's well, I'm just so head over heels in love with Florence Pugh and her performance in this. And it just like everything about this movie is just so beautiful and amazing. Like everything preceding them actually arriving in Sweden, like everything's dark or everything's sort of like covered in this uh, like filter that's like sort of gray. And it isn't until they get to Sweden where everything changes. Everything is in the light and everything is bathed in light and everything is bright and white and yellow and beige it's only when Florence kind of is in her dream state that she kind of goes back to that darkness. And the contrasts in this movie are so sexy to me. There's there's something about 
a contrast, I think both visual and like music wise that I think is super, super cool. You know about my, my playlist. I keep a collection of songs that are sort of preppy and positive, or at least sound preppy and positive that are put in horror situations. Um, Roller Coaster of Love is one that comes to mind when that's played in uh, spoilers for Final Destination 3, but in the tanning bed scene and uh, the run rabbit for get out. And I just think that is to be able to do that successfully is genius to me. And I think this movie does that quite well. You're sort of put into this utopia that is so bright and colorful and positive. And like you see all these people who are so about family and community and being together and experiencing things together, but there's all of this darkness that's behind it. And it's, I just, I think that contrast is just so amazing. And I think that's what makes this movie so impressive and so magnetic. Yeah. The story about, of the relationship between these two people set against the backdrop of this festival that's been going on for centuries. And there's like all this mythology and I like the juxtaposition between that, like how they're all in danger. And like, it's pretty obvious that they're all in danger, but yet like a scene between Christian and Josh where they're fighting over the thesis means so much and is so like, holy shit, what an asshole, what an asshole you are. But like deep down, I think we all know that they're not getting out of this. I think it almost knows that we know that. Like especially I was telling you when that old man was telling Connie that uh, her boyfriend Simon had left without her. It's like everyone in the audience is like, no, he did not. And we know that. And I think the movie knows we know that too. We're just sitting here waiting for something horrible to happen. But somehow – I like ended that movie like with a smile on my face because that's <laughs> the way that Florence Pugh ends it. I mean, she gets shit on the entire film and is able to release all of that pain. I think it's an interesting take on story structure. It's it's strange because it almost feels like the conflict is the whole movie and like the last five minutes is the resolution. I think this is, and I was thinking about this in the movie. I want to be able to have the ability to watch it without knowing Ari Aster's history. I wish I went into this not knowing what the trailer was like. Like I I wonder what how that experience would be different if you weren't given that prior knowledge because I I feel like it, things would be more up in the air. It would sort of feel like a 10 Cloverfield Lane moment where it's like are these people actually crazy or uh you know are they are they putting on a facade or is this just what they do? Are they lying to everyone? This would be an interesting movie to go in completely blind. Neither of us did that, but I was actually thinking during this time and a couple of the times past, because again, I, I have watched this a lot, watching this now, there are points in the movie that aren't lulls, but they are sort of like, okay, I am waiting for this thing that I remember to happen. Yeah. Whereas to go back and watch this from the beginning and just be like, what does that mean? What does that mean? What are they doing? What's about to happen? I totally agree. I wish I um, – even just to have seen it for the first time again, Yeah, this is like one of those movies for sure. This could apply for so many movies. And I like I don't know a solution to that because I feel like if this was marketed any other way, like if this was marketed – 
in a way that spun it as like this positive, uh, oh, go visit this village where everything is happy and everything. And then turns out the movie theater or like you get to the movies and it's it's not at all what you expected. I know that that's how a lot of movies fail is when they, you know, false advertise themselves. Like, I, I don't know a solution to this other than, you know, take friends recommendations or something. But like, I think the only way for like people like us to avoid this kind of thing is to just go to movies based on the filmmakers that make them. Like, obviously, <laughs> we're going to go see Ari Aster's next movie. There's really no reason why I would need to see a trailer for it. I was going to go. That's why I didn't watch any in-game trailers. Like Marvel movies, I'm going to go. Like, any sort of superhero movie, I'm going to go. Anything made by any of the filmmakers we've covered so far, I'm going to go, you know? I, I get that. But at the same time, I think even if you know the director, you still are sort of spoiled by what is coming. I mean, you think about a Tarantino movie, you know there's going to be, you know, blood and violence. If you go to uh, uh, an M. Night movie, you know there's going to be some kind of twist. If you watch an Ari Aster, like, even without knowing, because I don't think the trailers for this movie were that telling, but because I knew Hereditary and because I knew that Ari Aster was someone who did not hold back with his punches, I sort of expected and waited for these strong punches to happen. It's a weird problem to think about in the movie industry, but I do think it's interesting that this kind of ties in, but I think it's interesting that a lot of people want to label this movie as a horror movie, and I really don't think it's a horror movie. I think it has shocking elements, but I think all in all, Ari Aster said it perfectly when he was, uh, I guess, doing promotion for this film. And everyone was saying like, oh, what's your next movie about? Like, what is, what's the premise of your next movie? And he would always answer the same way. He said, this is a breakup movie. This is a movie about a breakup. At its core, that's what this movie is. Yeah, I think a movie can have horrifying elements and still just sort of be a drama. Um, right. I, I probably have said things that are contradictory to this before, but I think I'm sort of adapting this new stance where... <laughs> this is genre is fluid. <laughs> um, honestly, I, I guess like a genre to me is for someone who needs to be like talked into going to see a movie or someone who wants everything to fit nice and neatly. But like that doesn't fucking happen. And <laughs> I don't need to be talked into to going to see a movie like this. You know what I mean? Yeah. Uh, so people – really just kind of need to accept the fact that they're probably going to have multiple things thrown at them. Yeah, I don't remember who I had this discussion with, but the topic of this movie came up and the discussion was, well, I don't like horror movies. And that's when I was kind of like, well, it's not really a horror movie. And I think people associate horror movies with like jump scares and and ghosts and, you know, dark and spooky things. And I think that's why people avoid it. And, uh, you know, with Hereditary, I think Ari Aster branded himself as a horror director a level of filmmaking and craft that Ari Aster holds himself to it's transcending genre already like he's yeah. he's just making Ari Aster films and I'm here for it especially again we really have got to make um time to watch those shorts because I you know what it's okay do you remember the one where the dad was being like molested by his son <gasps> oh my god I do yeah he just is not afraid to include story elements that just feel very taboo to mm. most filmmakers. It's almost as if he's totally fine with his movies not making anything <laughs> and somehow they've made money. So that's yeah. Yeah. If I can remember back to our hereditary discussion, I remember saying something about like a 24 is 
uh, it seems like a big label company, but it seems to only produce like smaller indie films. But Hereditary was one that sort of broke out of that mold and it seemed like a very popular indie film. Yeah. Compared to like the big five, or the big six, or I don't know how many you count now that Disney ate Fox, but um, <laughs> they're not one of the big giant ones. But they do make movies that are successful compared to what they spend on them. Yeah. And that's how they're able to tell like every, you know, I feel like most of the stories are about some sort of demon worship. <laughs> I wrote down some notes. I talked about the camera setups. Oh, uh, with the camera setups, I think it was even more awesome that like towards the beginning, the use of mirrors allowed Mm -hmm. for people on both sides of the frame to be in one shot. You didn't have to break away from it. You could see both actors' performances and not have to worry, you know, about cutting back and forth. Because sometimes, and I noticed this in movies I certainly shouldn't, Sometimes the rhythm of like cutting back and forth to people, you can almost start to see a rhythm. And if if that's what I'm paying attention to, that's bad. So it's actually <laughs> kind of cool to just be like, okay, well, here we're locked on. And I think probably some people will say, well, if that's what you're paying attention to, that's bad too. But I have seen this movie like a dozen <laughs> times. So that's what I'm looking for now. Like I'm an editor. Like that is my freaking trade and I love long shots that don't involve editing. I think that that is the coolest <laughs> shit ever. I think most uh, most editors are like, oh, shoot, a break. Is this really amazing scene that I can just put here? Mm-hmm. That's beautiful. No, I'm just teasing. Well, but like, you know what I mean? I do. And I, I think that's the beauty of filmmaking. That's why I love this art so much is that like those long shots are there for a reason. Oh, They're yeah. supposed to make you feel something. They're supposed to make the shot mean something and make you feel something. I mean, it's so funny because a long shot can convey so many different things too. That's why I almost hate it because I, I want to know every single, like I want to know the reasons behind every single decision. And that's just impossible for a lot of movies, but yeah, I mean, it, it certainly is. It is hard, especially with a movie that's only like, is this 2019? No, maybe 2018. I would guess 2018. Man, we suck at these dates. Let's let me look. Hold on. Oh, it's 2019. It really was last year. Holy shit. Cool. A lot okay. has happened since last year. Yeah, <laughs> it feels so like it so has been. Longer. It's been a decade since 2019. <laughs> um, so basically, it might not be there for a 2019 movie. You know what I mean? Like these yeah. these answers might not. But again, what I said, you know, I think this, this kind of stuff will be in textbooks. Ari Aster is someone who, if he continues with his career, which I don't see why not, why he wouldn't, will be studied. I mean, the bravery at which he steers his ship, man incredible okay i just want to say beautiful set design and cinematography definitely want to look into those individuals and see what other work they've done uh i wrote i hate all the boys except the one who brought them all into this horrible situation (laughs) so by the end of it like the only person i even remotely like that's male is pele and he's the one that fucked them all over in the beginning anyway although i don't think that he necessarily meant for like them all to die because okay. like Mark, because think about this, like Mark and Josh only got killed because they were fucking around and Christian only got killed because Danny chose him. So none of them would have died if everything would have gone okay. But what about Connie and Simon? If they were just like cooperating as well, they wanted to leave. If everybody yeah. was just down with this shit, they would have been fine. Anyway, you You don't go somewhere where it's like too far away. They're letting people jump off cliffs and you're like, oh, we got to leave. We got to leave. 
person, will you please drive us away so we can go tell the outside world about this crazy commune? No, they're not. They're going to kill your ass. I mean, I guess. Like, that's the like, again, I think that's another thing. I think that they knew we knew that. Like, I think that that's something that we were expected to know that these people are doomed. I agree. But I think your argument was I don't think Pele expected them to die. But he had to have known that either they were going to die or they were going to have to stay there forever. No, why? Why Why wouldn't they have just been, been able to have been cool with all of this stuff oh, and then so, left okay. in nine days? So he was expecting them to just be cool with this? I mean, you know, Josh was about to do his thesis on Midsummer. I mean, I guess. I mean, you know, it's it's traditions or whatever. Like I, I will say, I know when he was in the room with uh, with Danny and everyone just kind of left them at the table. I remember like, like kind of audibly saying like, "Oh, that's so cute." And then you said something like, "He's gonna like he's bringing them all to their death." And I'm yeah. like, "Well, he's the first one to show Danny any kind of respect or attention that she actually deserves." Yeah, and I just. I love that. And I love that he was able to give that to her and it was just, it was refreshing. So no true. And again, they're the only people that um, live. And the last thing he really does notably is kiss her. So maybe they live happily ever after. Who knows? (laughs) Okay. uh, That's okay though. This is still take two. So we can, we can theorize more and take three. Also listen to it. And I'm definitely gonna need a refresh. Our, aunt podcast i was gonna say sister podcast but they're they are they're our aunts we explain movies uh they did an episode on this and it was amazing they're not actually our aunts either they are they are our three aunts and they're all witches they all look like beautiful young girls but they're hundreds of years old and um a lot of wise knowledge from all of them they did an episode about this movie it's fantastic and i'm gonna listen to it before take three yes agreed Re-listen. Re-listen to it, absolutely. I actually, um, I think that was the first, I think that was the episode that they introduced themselves to us. I think that was the first episode that they brought up that they had listened to us. That's awesome. And I'm eager to listen to that again. I think that's really cool. I think it's their their slutty rock episode. I think it's called like something about a slutty rock. I don't know. Yeah, it's when their show got so much better because it uh, started <laughs> to include us. Hush. No, that's. It was already yeah. great. Absolutely, of course it was. Um I just have Florence Pugh because I'm obsessed with her. I love everything I've ever seen her in. Speaking of patterns with Ari Aster movies, it's I think it's great that he was able to find two actresses, being Tony Collette and um, Florence Pugh, that were able to flawlessly convince us that they had or they were born with like American accents. Both of them yeah. are are not from America. Both of them have accents in real life. You would never know. They are so good at it. Absolutely. And my last note was just that Ari Aster is making work that will be studied by filmmakers and storytellers for years to come. And it truly will be. And um, it's about to be studied by us. We're going to yes. jump right. into it. It's just, just like a normal episode. It just happens to be my birthday. I'm really excited. Uh, I will. It's not my birthday now, but when you guys hear this, it will be. And I'm going to finally be able to rent a car. It's going to be amazing. <laughs> Right. I'm really looking forward to it. Yeah, I'm sure you are. I was going to say drink, but I figured you would have shot me down even sooner. <laughs> Son of a bitch. <laughs> no, you're you're going to be ready to apply for retirement. That's how old you are. You're almost dead. Take three. I want to apologize for several things. One, I feel like I say 
I feel like a whole fucking lot, and I apologize. But I also want to say, I feel like we are constantly apologizing for the audio issues in this podcast, and I would like to extend further apologies because I just moved into a new apartment, and there are some noises that are unexpected that are coming from my apartment, namely my tenants upstairs. I don't know if their floors are much thinner than usual, but you can hear everything, and it is very loud. So I apologize if that comes through. Also, I'm near my kitchen, and the refrigerator makes a weird sound when it turns on and off. So if you hear like like a weird like clicking or starting up or shutting down noise, it's just the fridge. Apologies for any issues. And also, I know, I think there's a storm where you are right now, and I'm sure yeah. your dog will bark at some point. So. <laughs> yeah. But I feel like I'll be able to edit all of these sounds out. Hopefully. So you probably won't uh, hear any of that. Maybe. Probably. You probably will. That being said, though, I have a lot to say. Yeah, I thought this was going to be like an easy birthday episode. And then Jordan was like, oh, I, it's going to be really long. <laughs> Do you want to just jump in? Sure. You know how we always start with the fi- Holy shit. I don't know if y'all can hear that, but that's like Godzilla's outside. <laughs> <laughs> I've stopped hearing it, so maybe that means that. Okay, cool. Good enough. <laughs> okay. Uh, so this movie had a $9 million budget. And hold on, did you say nine? Yeah, nine, nine, not 19 or 90. Nine, nine million dollars. Wow. Yeah, it's like after eight. Yes, that's lower than I expect. That's where this surprise is coming from. I didn't oh, expect to okay. that. I'm was cheap. <laughs> I was making sure you weren't like just mishearing me because of the thunder because it's still going. <laughs> I'm surprised. I that to me feels low for something like this but i was getting ready to hold my fingers up because i'm like oh he might not be able to hear me <laughs> so it cost nine million dollars to make and made 47.9 million dollars worldwide holy shit we're getting a sequel bitches i hope not that's a joke I don't think <laughs> yeah that, like uh, i don't know where you go from here however no. i don't uh, want a sequel to this movie you know the the financials do warrant that kind of thing, but I don't think that they would ever do a sequel to some, such a movie. But it would be interesting for them to pitch, like to hear that pitch, though. I well, that's actually one of my discussion questions. Is uh, we'll get to this later, but like you know, what happens next, and and what comes so we'll, next? We'll explore that. Do you hear it again? The thunder. Yeah. I, very very lightly okay cool uh moving on certified fresh on rotten tomatoes with an 83 percent hell yeah yeah and like typically a movie that's violent and disturbing might be a little bit more divisive but it seems like most critics liked it so that's good i would agree with most critics yeah for sure so i first want to say that ari aster did it again uh, I remember saying something along the lines of how he tells us the whole story within the movie when we did Hereditary. He kind of like told the whole story in the story. 
And in Midsummer, he did exactly that. I think he took a much more literal route this time by literally giving us like murals and illustrations of the things that were going to happen in this movie. The first image you see in the movie, if you, right. if you pause it after having watched it, you can chart out the entire film. But like, I remember seeing that and being like, I don't know what the hell this means. And that, then it was gone, you know? Right. It's genius because he does it in a way that like we don't realize it's happening. And yeah. while he is spoiling his own movie, it's it, it's not really a spoiler because it's not like we can make conclusions about those things that he's giving us. So yeah, by the time we have the context for it, it's already happening. So right, right. I I do think it's funny. I wanted to point this out. The first time that we saw like the pan shot of that, uh, it was like a blanket or a carpet, something uh, showing the ritual with the redhead trying to like seduce the boy with her pubes and period blood and stuff. Oh, the pussy pie. Yeah. Yeah. The, <laughs> the pussy pie. Um, I think I tried so hard to remember each frame because it was panning from the right side to the left. And I was like, Oh, it's showing us backwards. So I have to remember everything in reverse. And I realized watching it again, I was like, Oh no, it's just, it's, it's the same way. It doesn't matter. But yeah, it was like reading um, how it was supposed to be. Yeah. And back to the foreshadowing thing. There are bears in this thing literally everywhere. Uh, when Danny is in bed before Christian comes in telling her that he's going to leave for the party. There's a like in in her bedroom in the beginning, there's a painting above her that has um, a princess with a crown on. That's like that's like petting a bear. And then also towards the end when he's brought in to be questioned about the redhead, when he's like, so how do you feel about, is it Maja or Maha or something? Maya. Maya. I think it's spelled M-A-J-A or something like that. I don't yeah. know. He's, he's literally staring at a bear that's on fire. So again, Ari's cluing us in on everything that's going to happen, but we just, we don't know it yet. And that to me is like nothing short of genius. I think that's, that's really, really cool. It's so interesting that like, these people live in this world where all this art exists and they're like, wow, this is like, there's a burning bear in this room. Like if Peter just noticed that, like, that's weird. If I lived in Danny's apartment and saw this big bear with this queen, it would be hard for me to not notice like, Hey, I have a painting like this. You know what I mean? Like inadvertently, it's kind of, uh, it's a little bit too self-referential maybe. Yeah. <laughs> I'm not sure that like that's their focus. But anyway, uh, I want to go over some other things that you might have missed. I think the girls brought this up in their episode, um, but this was something that I didn't catch until I heard them talk about it. Uh, Pele mentions when he's talking with Danny, he mentions that he also lost his parents, but he lost them in a fire, which one can only assume means that they were sacrificed much like the people were at the end of this movie. So maybe there's some history there that, you know, his parents either sacrificed themselves or volunteered or were unlucky in that lottery. Well, yeah, the conclusion that they draw from that, which is, it's in an amazing episode. Again, we encourage everyone to listen to it. The conclusion that they draw from that is that uh, this whole, it being every 90 years thing may not be real. That right. may just be something to kind of uh, attract. Yeah, attract people who are like, wow, I'm never going to be able to do this again. I might as well. Mm -hmm. And also going back to take two, when we were discussing uh, Florence Pugh and how she does not have an American accent, but you would never know that. Um, Christian, the actor who plays Christian, is also foreign. I think he's like Irish. Okay. Irish, yeah. I yeah. think he's Irish, um, which blew my mind. I was watching some of the extras on uh, on iTunes, and that fucking – I was like, holy shit, uh, Ari Aster knows how to pick them. 
along those lines. Will Poulter is also foreign. Yeah. I did not know that. I think the only the only things that I knew him from were We Are the Millers, which he has an American accent in that, and then this. And yeah, I think Josh is the only one in that group that's American. Yeah. It's that I was like I may have heard that from oh, we explain movies. I don't know if that could be <laughs> Thank you guys for that fact. If uh, if that's where I heard it from, I if they did, I do not remember that bit. But I was watching the extras, and I was like, "Holy shit, they did so well!" Like you never would have known. You never would have known that they that they did not have American accents. Yeah, I think this is really cool. Uh, I had to actually go back to confirm this. I found out that you can see a face in the trees when Danny. So after Danny's crowned May Queen, and she's being lifted up on that podium, and she's kind of being walked away you can see a face in the trees behind her that look like there's a tube hooked up to its mouth. So it's like, she's kind of on this drug trip. So everything's kind of floating and bulging anyway, but you can see this face and it is so creepy. Like her sister. Yeah. Yeah. It's supposed to be her sister. I believe the timestamp is one hour, 49 minutes and 30 seconds in about. That's what I saw. That's awesome. I saw that as well and was like, there's no way that's got to be like Photoshop right? or something. I didn't go back and look at it, but I thought that was really nuts. I, I thought the same thing. And that's why I went back to look. Yeah. I was like, there's no way. There's no way that that was because and now I see it now. It's so clear mm. and I'll never be able to unsee it. It's that's it was really, really genius little Easter egg there. Well, by that point in the movie, all the visuals were really fucked up. Yeah. Like they were like the trees were moving and the skin was moving and all that stuff. And the, like her flowers and stuff were all dancing around. So if you don't, if you don't notice those things, <laughs> then you need to pay more attention. But that, what you were just talking about the face, I probably could have watched it 20 more times and never have seen that. Same, same. But it is like, once you see it, it is kind of jarring. Like it is oh, very yeah. creepy. Mm-hmm. So my next point, um, Pele claims that the sketch of hers that he does for her birthday, he says that this is just something that I do for birthdays. And he is seen doing it again after she's at the dinner table, after she's crowned May Queen. Yeah. And he's sketching her as the May Queen. So it's sort of, I saw someone say that this is sort of like her rebirth kind of thing. Like this is her being reborn, which I thought was really, really cool. This is just funny, but the painting in the background of Christian's apartment when Danny is saying that it doesn't sound like an apology, it sounds more like um, too bad. Mm-hmm. The painting is called Dino Assholes, <laughs> which is, well, I just thought that was funny. The Blood Eagle ritual is a real thing. And that is the thing that uh, when you see Simon, who's like hanging uh, and his lungs are exposed and his back is like opened up, uh, that is a real torture process that the the Vikings actually did. It was a way to keep them alive while being completely tortured. It was, I think they like cracked open their rib cages and and made their lungs. It's weird. Look it up. And I don't want to get into the gory details, but that was a real thing. He, I, I think a lot of what was in this movie was folklore. I don't think it was real. Um, I read up on a lot of, uh, quote unquote anthropology experts or whatever. They say that a lot of this stuff was was fictional, but that particular aspect of this movie was real. And then one last thing, I love that Ari says this in one of the behind the scenes things. He says, um, I was excited about building a world that felt very healthy and lush. 
and then by the end it becomes overripe. And I was like, what a perfect way to describe this movie. I thought that was beautiful. So those are the things that you might have missed. That's really that's really cool. I thought so. Very interesting. Way to go. Thanks. Apparently the word harga can be traced back to this fairy tale about villagers dancing themselves to death. Okay, so that was real, yeah. Yeah, that, that's also very, like, spoilery, too, if you have any idea what that means. <laughs> oh, true, yeah, yeah. Okay, so let's jump into the cinematography of this movie. So Ari Aster used his longtime cinematography partner, Pavel Pogorzelski, is how you <laughs> pronounce it. That's awesome. He actually not only served as the director of photography on Hereditary, but many of his short films as well. The two actually met at AFI in 2008. After they shot their first project together, they instantly wanted to work together on their thesis, which ended up becoming The Strange Thing About the Johnsons, which is linked in the description. That's the movie with um, the dad and the son. Yeah, yeah. So they became a little team after that because that went over well. He has openly spoken about reading Hereditary long before it was made and realizing that in order for the studio to trust him enough to hire him as the project's director of photography, he needed to start working on jobs at that same budgetary level as Hereditary uh, to show that he could handle it. Because like this is something I don't think I've ever talked to you about, but basically a studio is often apprehensive to pair a first-time or less experienced director with a less experienced director of photography. Does that make sense? We need at least somebody who's somewhat experienced. You know what I mean? Yeah, yeah. At this level. So he knew he wanted to be a viable option for this movie. He says what wound up getting him hereditary was their shorthand and how well they were able to communicate, obviously from having worked together so much over the years on short films. So he said when Hereditary was released, they were already in Hungary prepping for Midsummer, which makes sense uh, seeing as how these films came out like just over a year apart. Mm -hmm. And a little side note, I know that you had mentioned wishing you could have gone into this film without knowing Ari Aster's typical tone. Yeah. And um, I was listening to an interview with Pavel, and he said at one point Midsummer was supposed to go before Hereditary. I, yeah, I remember hearing that too. So I wonder if that would have affected your view of Hereditary instead. That's oh, that's interesting. The only reason why I think you might have had like a maybe a little bit more of a similar experience with Hereditary is just because Hereditary is dark and disturbing, and the setting and tone of it all is pretty dark and disturbing from the get go. Yeah. You know what I mean? Yeah. Uh, whereas this movie is the movie that seems to be more of a contrast. Yeah, I agree. Um, or, or like it ebbs and flows, like it kind of starts off really dark, but then they get to the village and like things are, you know, happy and bright and then it kind of dips again. And um, yeah, I guess what I just mean, like if you, if you talk about like a family drama dealing with the death of a mother and a movie that takes place entirely, almost entirely during a midsummer celebration, yeah, I would yeah. think that the, the family drama would have been the darker one. Agreed. You know, yeah, so true. Eh, that's just a, a thought. Okay, back to Pavel. An interesting challenge that he faced during the making of Midsummer was dealing with the sun in the film, obviously, because you know, in a lot of movies, the position of the sun in the sky is isn't necessarily a deal breaker because you have the ability to hang giant covers 
overhead to block the sun or you can relight shots. But in midsummer, because they were shooting in such a large field, and again, they had $9 million, you know, uh, it did not make financial sense or logistical sense to be able to count on fixes like that. So he said that he had to just embrace the sun and utilize where it was in the sky to his advantage. Obviously, that's a challenge that few DPs on a feature film set have ever had to face, and even fewer came out with such incredible results you know <laughs> yeah oh and not to mention everyone's wearing white clothes yeah. which is its own challenge because of how reflective of light the color white can be mm-hmm. you know yeah there was a not to interrupt you but kind of piggybacking off what you're saying there's on the extras the itunes extras for this movie there's literally a half hour segment of the time lapse of them building all of the buildings and like preparing the fields of this area. It's, it's a half hour, but it's a time lapse of however long it took them to build that stuff. And it, yeah. I scrubbed through it. It's pretty interesting. But uh, if you own it, I recommend taking a look. It's interesting. Definitely. Okay. Do you know what magic hour is? Is that the same as twilight? Is that like when it's kind of like kind of dusk? I would say probably it's like the golden hour. Yes. Yeah. yeah. Magic hour is typically the term that like filmmakers may use. And then golden hour is more for photography, but like it's interchangeable. Yeah. Um, you may have heard one, but not the other or both or whatever. Uh, so basically it's in the day right after sunrise and right before sunset deemed by a lot of cinematographers as one of the best times to shoot because the color of the sky is warmer and shadows aren't so harsh. Mm-hmm. Okay, so when Alejandro Inarritu and his DP Emmanuel Lubetsky uh, shot The Revenant, that's the movie that won Leonardo DiCaprio the Oscar. Is that the bear one? Yes. Yeah. Also with a bear, yeah. Yeah. Um, <laughs> they shot that using all natural light. They relied heavily on the magic hour. Okay. Well, Pavel has actually spoken about working 10-hour days, 7.30 to 5.30, to actively avoid sunrise and sunset. <laughs> so the higher the, the sun was in the sky, the more consistent they could yeah. count on it being. That you know what sense. I mean? Yeah, yeah. Yeah. And he was just like, you know, I, we just had to go in there and we had to test what what looked right and figure out how I was going to deal with this. Another issue they ran into was due to the very expansive 360-degree nature of the shoot. He said that they had to be clever when it came to where to stage the crew. According to Pavel, they were pretty much hauled up behind each building out in the field. <laughs> uh, so behind one building might be the director's village, which is like where the, sh- the footage can be viewed. Yeah. And um, behind another might be craft services or, you know, <laughs> it kind of demystifies the place. But uh, I thought it was like a little fun bit of information. Yeah. He goes deeper uh, with these challenges on an interview that I will share, but it's pretty technical. So to describe it, I'd be using a bunch of set lingo that I don't think most people care about or like cared for me to like define each of these words. But if you're a filmmaker, uh, I would definitely recommend you listening to this interview. Awesome. Yeah. I have a lot of links as well. So the, the notes section for this episode is going to be yeah expansive. It's going to be beefy. <laughs> Oh, and I also just have something to mention about production design as well. Okay, this sentence repeats one particular word a whole lot, so just bear with me. Okay, so similar to the village in the movie The Village, the entire village was completely built from scratch, 
which you had mentioned, but this time is not in Pennsylvania, but in a field on the outskirts of Budapest in Hungary. And I did find out that it's all gone. They tore it down. So can't visit there either. <laughs> yeah, I was very bummed about that. I was sort of thinking about this when I when I scrubbed through the time lapse because there was a separate shot. There was one shot of the village and then there was a separate section where they were building that yellow triangle house. Yeah. They built all that knowing that they had to burn it down. And like that had to be one shot. Like you had to get it right. I don't, like, does that make it bittersweet? Is it, it's, I don't know. I just think that's it's kind of sad. I mean, it's sad, but it's also pretty practical. Yeah. Like they didn't have to tear that down. They just burnt it down and hey, this is in the movie. Yeah. So I wrote some notes on the director's cut of this movie. I didn't realize this until I started doing research and I saw videos were referencing scenes that I had not seen of this movie. I was like, where are these coming from? Turns out there's a director's cut of this movie. That's a half. How many times have we talked about this damn director's cut? In take one and take two? No, but just like before this, since then. I, I don't remember any. Oh, I've told you about this director's cut. Well, I kind of scrubbed through it and looked at the scenes that were missing from the theatrical release. And I want to summarize them. A lot of them aren't really new, but I think they help in discussing this movie. So did you say it was part of your purchase? Yeah, so I bought this on iTunes. I, I, I own this movie on iTunes. And when you do that, it's sort of like a built-in DVD and it has an extras section. And in this extra section, there is the director's cut. Um, gotcha. So, okay. So I just want to point out that like I was actively looking for YouTube links of these these scenes and I couldn't find them. I couldn't either. So I was like, well, shit. Okay. I guess I'm, I guess I won't talk about that, but that's great that you have them and are going to describe yes, them. Yes. I Because I've seen them, but like I, now I'm thinking maybe they were on YouTube at one point and have gotten taken down. I don't know. Um, but it was weird because I even tried to find summaries of it and I could only find like one article that described yeah. in very few details what happens. But I watched them and I can give you some some background. Um, a lot of them, again, only reinforce everything that we already knew, mainly that Christian is just an asshole. But let's get into them. So it is revealed in one scene that Christian actually planned on inviting Danny but you can tell that she kind of sees right through him. And he was kind of like, you know, I was I was going to invite you. And she was like, well, yeah, only after I broke down about it. And he was like, well, it was going to be a romantic surprise. And you kind of ruined it. But let's go take this trip. And then... It, I don't believe him for a second. No, and it's, re it's reinforced that he was lying because it, immediately after that scene, it cuts to the scene where he's in the apartment and he's like, hey guys, I invited Danny to, yeah. uh, to the trip. So it was all to appease her. It was, you know, he sucks. Uh, let's see. There's a scene when they get to the village and they all like sit down and they have like a snack or something. And this man stands up and he sings this prayer and Josh leans over to Pele and he's like, Hey, can I get a translation of that later? And Pele's like, yeah, sure. I'll absolutely, you know, I'll, I'll help you translate that. And Christian who's sitting on the other side of Pele immediately butts in. He's like, yeah, I'd like that too. Thanks. Thanks Pele. And it's like, clearly he's, he's like trying to butt in on Josh again. And that's like fucking hate him. Uh, there's a scene, it's another lunch scene, um, where Danny is sort of interacting with a woman who's holding this baby and they're kind of like playing along and Danny's like giving her this little cloth to play with and stuff. 
And the woman claims that the baby's mother is in another village at the moment to help the baby detach. Uh, And she claims that the children who are raised here are kind of raised by everyone. So there's some discussion about this that I want to bring up later, but this really supports the idea that this is a community and this is, this is a communal environment and everyone shares everything. There's a small scene that's not really important, but it's Christian who's interviewing that woman that opens up his eyes at the end of the movie. She's kind of scattered throughout and I love her. I think she's beautiful. Basically, uh, it's after the cliff suicides and he's interviewing this woman and they are decorating this tree and Christian is asking her things like, you know, how how many of these Atastupa or Atastupin have you seen? And she was like, well, you know, a lot. So I think that also leads into the discussion about how this is not every 90 years. This is a, you know, regular thing. Yeah. Um, but he also asks her, do you grieve? Like, do you guys have time to mourn the loss of these people when it happens? And she replies very plainly. She says, we grieve and we celebrate. And that is sort of the end of that scene. But they were decorating. I think it was we were led to believe that they were decorating this tree with things that belonged to the elder couple. Now that's important for the next thing that I'm going to bring up. This one starts off kind of funny. It is when Christian is trying to talk Danny down from what she's experiencing after she saw the uh, the cliff suicides. And he's saying things like, you know, it's it's culture, you know, we we put our our elderly in nursing homes. They probably think that's terrible and barbaric. But then a woman comes out from the background and she says, hi, would you guys like to join us for one of our rituals? And Danny is just like, oh, my God, like, why? What's happening now? And you can just see the dread in her face. And it just it it was kind of a funny moment. But so this scene is very interesting. I want to talk about it once I'm done. But basically, they follow this woman. They they travel to this river and it's it's nighttime. So you can tell that they've been traveling for a while. Okay, in the trailer. There are nighttime shots that are like yeah. full on missing from the movie. Mm-hmm. Yep. This is this whole scene is is at night uh, or it's dark out. So they travel to this river and they want to offer who they call mother some sacrifices to thank her for everything that she has given them. And they offer her this tree that was the, the tree that was being decorated earlier and they throw it into the river. So I think it's it's sort of to symbolize like we've sacrificed these two people, we're giving them back to you. Please, you know, give them back to us in another form. A man steps out of the crowd and he is like, "I don't think that mother is properly thanked. I don't want to upset her. I think we I think it's important that we sacrifice something else." And he's being very theatrical about it. He's speaking mm-hmm. a different language, but he's um he's you can tell that it's it's kind of like a play or a skit. He's like, we need to sacrifice something else. And this young boy steps up and he's dressed kind of like a tree with, and he has ornaments on it as well. And uh, he comes forward and he's like, I will be the sacrifice. Like sacrifice me. I'm, I'm brave enough to do that. So he goes up to the river and these people start putting chains on his feet and they are, uh, they bring this big rock that they put like on his chest and they hold him up and they're like, swinging him like they're about to throw him into the river and like sacrifice him and drown him and this clearly upsets danny keep in mind this is right after the uh the cliff suicides and she's like she's really shaken by it she's like stop like don't don't do this but before she can like properly 
intervene, someone from the background is like, okay, no, stop. He's proven his loyalty. He, you know, he's brave enough to do this. We don't need to go any further. So it was like, uh, is it Abraham in the Bible who sacrifices his son or like God tested him or something? Yeah. Yeah. So God asks Abraham to kill Isaac and Abraham just is right about to do it. And then, yeah. Yeah. So it was one of those kinds of moments where uh he was it was sort of a test of this kid's bravery and danny is like oh my god i can't believe i like i gotta get out of here this is too damn much so she storms off and christian follows her and she's like we need to leave i need we need to get out of here and this is where christian admits to writing his thesis on um on midsummer and danny's like are you fucking crazy like a that's josh's thing and b like I want to leave. I don't want to stay here. Like, why are we here? It's like because of Pele, like they're doing pagan rituals and they're depending on no one knowing about this ever. So at this point, we know that she knows that something's up. And I think this goes into your discussion or this discussion that we had in take two about how much Pele knew. I am led to believe that Pele knew that everyone was going to be sacrificed and he knew from the beginning that uh, Danny was going to be crowned the May Queen. Do you agree? Yeah. I mean, I guess if if he... There were also theories on Reddit that I saw where uh, it was believed that Pele was sending photos of Christian to his village. And like this whole thing was set up by Pele from the beginning. Uh, I think it's interesting that they have to have nine sacrifices by the end of this thing and people are bringing their friends and, you know, Pele had no problem bringing, you know, his two friends and then Christian and then Danny. There's a lot of theories out there about the intentions of of Pele in this village. So if you entertain the idea that these people are, are acting as if no one can ever find out about these things, then obviously anybody you bring in is going to have to either stay or die. Right. I don't know. I don't know. That's confusing. I would like to hear what you guys think about that. Cause, uh, same, same seeing all of this led to so many questions that I had. I would love to know your thoughts on, on the following first and foremost, did Danny stay? And if she did, where are the other May Queens? Are they just scattered through the village and we just like, don't know their history. I like, I would have assumed that one would have stepped forward or are they going to kill her? <laughs> so that did cross my mind. I was wondering where they were too. I thought maybe that they were just people throughout the village. It's not something where you you keep bringing it up after you win or whatever. Yeah. I like to think that she she stayed and found a home with those people. It's really the only... That's what I like to think as well. Yeah. she's She's so clearly in the beginning portrayed as like stuck it's like isolated it's cold it's snowing yeah she's lost her parents she's lost her sister and she's losing touch with her boyfriend very quickly and she like even with christian's friends she doesn't seem welcome yeah and And, like the only man who treats her right and is actually like kind to her is still around by the end of the thing exactly maybe maybe she's able to forgive and forget i don't know (laughs) maybe but like i think um, and like part of, I, I think there's a lot of, uh, clearly there's a lot of emotional trauma and I think, um, it, it, her way of dealing with it is sort of being alone. Anytime that she has to cry, uh, she has to excuse herself. Like she's always seen leaving the scene if she has to cry or have like a moment to herself. 
That's something um, that the girls bring up too. It's like she has to console herself by herself. By herself, yeah. 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 And then comes Pele, who is the first person to show her any kind of empathy or kindness or even like, and I noticed this too, fucking make eye contact with her. Christian rarely offers her this uh, courtesy, but if you pay attention, Pele is like, he's always leaning in. He's always got like his hand on her back and he is looking at her. Mm -hmm. Uh, He's always giving her his full attention. And then when she gets to the village, she's like, she's finally given this like reborn energy of community and like of welcoming and life. And because everything in this village is shared, even emotions, especially emotions. And I think we see this really anytime anyone is going through either something good or something devastating, like the group chimes in and experiences it together. Yeah. Um, When Danny discovers Christian cheating, they're all there and they're mourning with her and breathing with her. Um, I mean, when that girl is, is, in the act with exactly. – not like I'm afraid to say sex, but like she's <laughs> – while while Christian and Maya are having sex, like all those women yeah. are, are experiencing it with her or whatever. Exactly. Yeah, exactly. So I think I, see, I think we see Danny experiencing two very traumatic moments in this movie. And the first is obviously when her family dies. And when that happens, she only has Christian to support her. Uh, and Christian, as we know, he might as well just be like a soulless vessel because he's he's just worthless flesh. And I don't think he, he doesn't carry any empathy with him whatsoever. I think he it's clear he's there because he sort of has to be. It's sort of like an obligation to him. But the second event, I think, is when Danny catches him having sex towards the end with with the redhead. And I think this time her trauma is shared. And it's it's like this is where we see her transformation because she suddenly has this this bubble of empathy around her and it it allows her to literally blossom into this like new changed being. And um, I, I think one of the the women after she gets crowned, she's like, you're family now? Like we're sisters? Like you, you are family now? And it's sort of, it's celebrated. Yeah. And I think that's why we're left with a smile at the end of the end of this movie. It's because like, like, yeah, it was a happy ending, kind of. Yeah, I, and you know, I, her going on and being okay with all of this isn't as far-fetched as some people probably are thinking right now because yeah. really when you go back to it, there's no there's not really malice in this film when it comes from any of the violence. It's all ritual and it's all about preserving the community. Right. So the only times where people are actually like full on, you know, murdered, uh, are either for sacrifice or to preserve the sanctity of the place and then used as sacrifice. You know what I mean? There's no extra bloodshed. Like even, even Mark and Josh and and Connie and Simon in turn get used as sacrifices. You know what I mean? Like, Oh, you're, you're misbehaving. Okay. Well, you're just going to be one of the sacrifices to preserve the community. I you know, know what I mean? Yeah, I, I agree with you to some extent. I do think it's a little bit like it was never explicitly told to them that you have to follow the rules and you have to swear to never tell or or I guess rather you have to stay here forever. Otherwise, we kill you. I don't think that they were they were punishing bad behavior, I guess. Well, I guess what I mean is that like misbehaving is like stirring up stuff like we need you guys to stay here forever. Yeah, I guess. Uh, I guess so. And you're you're fighting that so i guess it's just like we're not killing you 
because we like doing it or because we dislike you. You even see their own people dying. Yeah. And it's a positive thing. Mm -hmm. So it's not, I don't think it was like out of malice. It's possible to get past the fact that it's like, this is just the way that they live. Yeah. You know what I mean? She had no one before and now she's got this family. Yeah. And maybe this is how things are for her from now on. I'm okay with thinking that she just lived happily ever after or whatever. <laughs> the story ended, absolutely loved it. Yeah, yeah. Uh, I'm there's happy a, with that. There's a video I came across that uh, it's, it's like a full half hour analysis on um, like the psychology of cults and how cults are able to like take people and manipulate them and the processes that they use to keep them. Um, and he, he does this full analysis about how clearly – Danny joined this cult and yeah. brainwashed her and maybe through doing that, it kind of brainwashed the audience as well. I think it was a little bit too complicated to bring up in this, but I will absolutely link it. And I highly, highly recommend that you watch it. Uh, it will be in the notes section. Um, and I'll send it to you later. I actually, I kind of want to watch it with you cause it's, it's really, really cool. Okay, cool. I think she did very clearly join a cult at the end. Yes, cults are are bad. Cults are are dangerous. However, uh, in the context of this movie, like if that's all we have to to hope that this woman finally found a family and finally was able to sort of recapture some of the um, the peace that we actually never really saw her have because even you know at the opening of this movie she's panicking about her family so yeah um finally gain some peace i'm okay with that like we won't have to we don't have to to pull too many threads i get it at that part again like i said i feel like there are so many rabbit holes that this movie opens up and you could travel down any one of them and be lost forever um but that was just one that i thought was really interesting I mean, it's a great question, and I think we're on the same page where we, we yeah. think that she's still there, and uh, I think she's probably just more, maybe a little bit more numb to, or, or, or just appreciative of, of the setup that they've got. <laughs> so to wrap this up with one last discussion, uh, do we want to wrap up our thoughts on whether or not we think Pele is the villain here? Like, do we think that this was all a setup from the very beginning? If If we are entertaining this thought process that he was plotting each of their trips to Sweden. Maybe he will serve as an antagonist in this story. Do I think he's a bad person? No, I don't think, again, I don't think that you can look at these people as like true villains. Again, maybe antagonists in the story, but like not true villains. They are just doing what seems completely natural to them. And in the director's cut, it is even driven home more by getting to know more about the way that the actual Harga people react to this sort of thing. We, we, you know, we grieve and then we celebrate like this is just natural. This is 100% normal. I mean, his own brother was one of the sacrifice people. They don't believe it to be like a, a murder. They believe it. You go back into the earth and it's a higher being of existence or whatever. I think this kind of turns into an ethical or philosophical discussion about whether or not, like, does that make Pele a villain if what he's doing he feels is, like, good? Like, if he did really bring them to sacrifice, but, like, in his mind it was something that... I guess that's a good point. You're right, because, I mean, some people, the the worst villains in reality and in fiction are the ones that believe they're doing the right thing. Right. 
that's that's so hard because like in this country that we live in that's like dominated by religion uh there's ritual sacrifice in a lot of the big religions here you know what i mean and it's like so because they're doing it modern day because they're doing it so openly and yeah yeah i I don't, I don't know. Like that's, that's very hard. It's another rabbit hole. I'm going to say that my conclusion to this is I think Pele knew more than what he was letting on. I don't yeah. think he expected Josh or Mark to die. Uh, I think Josh and Mark maybe, maybe brought that on themselves by snooping around and not following the rules. Yeah. Um, I think, you know, in our society, I think there should be, you know, punishment maybe not death but punishment do you think he expected christian to die because christian's death was left in danny's hands if danny would have would have nodded the other direction he would have been fine i i honestly don't think it mattered to him at that point i think at that point pele was head over heels infatuated with (laughs) his may queen that he i think he took claim of and and took credit for bringing um, and I think he was able to live happily ever after with this beautiful woman who was abused. And like, I can't say that I love Pele, but I fucking love Pele. Like the, it's, it's such a weird, weird dilemma, this movie, <laughs> but that's what makes it so goddamn cool. Yeah. Okay. So I feel like he was only really kind of responsible for the deaths of three individuals. Not like he killed anybody. He just brought them there and the people around them killed him. And again, their view of, of death isn't like our view of death. Who knows? Who knows what he knows? Um, but I think it's great that we're able to sympathize with him and fall in love with him for giving our protagonist the love that she deserves. Yeah. Yeah. And like, if anything, he's a victim too. He's a member of this cult as well. These belief systems were being pushed on him as well at a young age. And I think if anything, two victims who both lost their families were able to come together through this fucked up Swedish cult. Yeah. Happy midsummer, everyone. It's not midsummer. I, I, it's in June, right? Uh, June 24th. We talked about that, yeah. There's a lot to, to this movie. A whole lot. Um, but happy birthday. I hope I hope you had fun. I, I did, yeah. Thank you. Happy birthday to you, too. I appreciate that. This is that. probably the most in-depth, I think, I've ever thought about any of the movies that we've done. Oh, come on. Not Matrix? Matrix was good. I think Matrix, I was more confident about what I was saying and researching, but this one, I feel like everything is so up in the air that it could be anything. And it raises so many philosophical and ethical and moral questions that like it would take, it take like a PhD, the- a PhD thesis to really, you know, cover. All the bases, <laughs> so <laughs> That's funny. Someone write a thesis about this movie. I will read it. I would love, I like, I want to know everything about it. Yeah. And then I'll report back. Maybe we'll do a Midsummer Part 2 episode. <laughs> nope. <laughs> so, okay. So our next episodes will be Season 3 episodes. We cannot wait for you all to hear them. We've not recorded them yet, but we can't wait for you all to hear them. <laughs> um, and thank you all for listening. Thank you guys for stopping by my channel. No, um, Don't forget to like and subscribe and put a comment down below. 
Uh, happy birthday. Happy birthday. Happy. I'll be nice. 22nd year of existing. And uh, I know we can be honest. I'm, I'm 25 years old, guys. And <laughs> st- I'm going to edit that laughter out. Hey everyone, first off, we here at Take 3, a movie podcast, want to make clear that we do not condone murder in any way. Uh, okay, thank you for listening to episode 33 of Take 3, a movie podcast. If you like this episode, head on over to take3amp.com for two whole seasons worth of content. Thank you all so very much for your support, and we will see you in season three.